Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Let's Talk About It. This is Susan Johnson, and my co-host is out campaigning because he's running for office for the Willimantic Taxing District. So Dennis O'Brien will be back after the elections. But for now, we have a wonderful guest for you today, somebody who's doing wonderful work all over the state of Connecticut, State Senator Matt Lesser, who he and I went into the Capitol together back when Obama first got elected and we were sworn in in 2009. So thank you so much, Senator Lesser, for for helping us out and being on the show today. Oh, it's great to be back on the show, Susan. It's great to be with you. Yes, thank you so much. And so I just am, uh, I think that the listeners should know that uh, you and uh, Senator Flexer and, and I all came in uh, in 2009 uh, when we had a pretty good size uh, representation uh, in the House Democrats uh, back in that day. Yes, that was a, a long time ago. But yes, we had a big we had a big class. We rode in the Obama wave together, and uh, uh, there were a few of us still left. Yes, there are, but not as many. And so it's me, uh, Jason, uh, Majority Leader Rojas, and uh, State Rep and Deputy Speaker Michelle Cook, uh, who are in the House. We're the only ones left from that group. We also have uh, Senator. Uh, Pat Billy Miller, uh, Senator Winfield in the Senate as well. So there, there are a few of us, but not, but not too many. Yeah, I, yeah. So in the House, in the Senate, I mean, there's, there's just a few left. And uh, and you know, I think that one of the things that helps us uh, is uh, the knowledge that we brought with us, but also the work that we've done over the last few years. Yeah. So having said that, I know that when you were in the House, you did a lot of good things, and you're still doing a lot of good things now. You're the uh, Senate Chair of the Human Services Committee, and we'll get to some of that work in a minute. But let's go back to when you were in the House and you put together that great bill to take care of uh, the student loans. Yeah, well, you know, I looked at the time I was the chair of the banking committee in the House, and uh, we had a financial product that was out there, student loans, that were um, bigger than credit card debt, and yet it was completely unregulated by the state of Connecticut or really by anybody. Uh, And so um, I wrote a law uh, called the Student Loan Bill of Rights um, that uh, regulates uh, the student loan industry, just like any other financial product, to make sure that there are you know basic consumer protections and the fact that these guys have to answer questions about you know how payments are made and uh, you know other questions that borrowers may have, uh, and then also provides assistance uh, to student borrowers. Uh, and that second part, you know, the, the law we passed way back in 2015, um, but the, we, we were really successful at. Uh, regulating uh, the student loan industry, and in fact, it became uh, a national model. What, what we were less successful at was providing that uh, assistance focus on borrowers. And so I'm actually very uh, happy that this year in the state budget, we were able to finally step up uh, and uh, create an office uh, to assist borrowers and really focus on, you know, people are seeing their uh, payments resume after the um after the pandemic, uh, they were paused for uh, a couple of years and, you know, people are really hurting. Uh, and so the question is, how do you, uh, how do you, uh, uh, avoid getting, uh, you know, absolutely hammered? What, what are your options? What, what can you do to, uh, make sure that you're uh, saving money and, uh, uh, you know, where do you go to resolve disputes with, uh, with servicers? And so, um, it's been a big success. Um, I'm really hoping that that new office, the Student Loan Ombudsman, provides that extra assistance that I know so many uh, people. 
people out there need right now. Oh, well, thank you so much for all your work on that. And I just think that that is a, it's a great step forward. We did do a good job this year. I know that there were a lot of people on the other side of the aisle who, was, who were trying to stop that work. And uh, some of the rhetoric that I hear about student loan situation is really uh, not really tuned into the circumstances that we've placed students in over the last several years when we uh, finally, uh, when Reagan was president, and stopped them from being able to declare uh, the student loan debt uh, and discharged in bankruptcy. Uh, so now we have the only group of people in the whole country that haven't got bankruptcy available to them, uh, and uh, and it's created a horrible problem. The interest rates are crazy, and if they're federal loans, the crazy interest rates under the federal student loan programs. And uh, the I just talked to a student who just finished paying her debt off. Uh, she had incurred a $30,000 debt uh, for loans, but ended up having to pay $90,000 because of the interest rates. And right. uh, she was a very young person, and uh, her so I know that she didn't have that debt that long, you know. Uh, but still, despite that, the debt was just enormous. So three, you know, two, three times what uh, what you would normally expect. It's more than a mortgage in a house uh, in terms of the interest rates some, in some circumstances. Yeah. And, and the Higher Education Act, which was what originally set up. Uh, the, the federal student loan program. It was a civil rights bill. The idea was, if we, you know, finance college for folks, uh, it will help people get into the middle class. It will help reduce inequities in our country uh, and, and provide opportunity for everyone. Um, but, you know, as a part of a compromise, rather than provide grants to folks, it was really focused on on loans. And it's, uh, you know, for too many folks, they're uh, caught in a debt cycle and it uh, has um, really prevented folks from getting in the middle class. Uh, in fact, uh, for some groups, uh, college is no longer, this is heartbreaking, uh, college is no longer a pathway to the middle class because the cost of debt exceeds the uh, increased benefit uh, of education, and that's that's really heartbreaking. So, um, I, I think you know, obviously, not everyone needs to go to college, uh, but uh, for those who, who would like to, you know, they should be able to go without uh, going, uh, you know, inescapably into debt. That seems uh, to only make sense. And uh, um, you know, Connecticut has a particular role to play, and part of it is regulating student loans. Uh, part of it is pushing our federal delegation to do more to support student borrowers. Uh, but obviously, we also have our part to do in terms of funding higher education, uh, our community college system, and our state colleges and universities. And I was very, very pleased with our work that we've done with the community college funding because now we have free community college for our students all throughout the state of Connecticut. And that will give everybody a leg up in terms of being able to get that associate's degree or that certification that they need to be able to go on and get a job that will help pay the rent and uh, take care of them as they move through the through their years as workers in our economy, but also it will increase the number of students, I believe, and I've talked to some university professors about this, uh, it will increase the uh, numbers of students that go from uh, not getting through anything but to their, say, their sophomore year, but they'll be able to finish uh, all four years because of the free community college and early college opportunities that we have in some of our high schools. Yeah, no, it's great. so it's a great program, and we gotta we gotta expand it even further. Yes, yes, I would like to see more. And and of course, there was the national Pell grant that used to pay the whole amount 
and then that was cut back under the Reagan administration as well. Well, I'm not voting for that guy anymore. And neither am I. <laughs> I just have to review sometimes uh, what he what he actually did uh, to to students and to where we are today. So that's kind of like where I I like to show. But we have we haven't been able to change it either. Uh, so over the last several years. But anyway, moving on. So then you uh, said that you ran for the Senate and you uh, left the House. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sorry about that. Yeah. You know, we I, missed I you. We missed you. We really did. But we were glad to have your power in the in the in the Senate and uh, your work there. And so uh, since then, you've done a lot of good work. And I just wanted to just check in with you on the work that we've done. Uh, as you have been the uh, Senate chair this time of the Human Services Committee. So I want to thank you for stepping up to do that and the work that you've done there. Thank you, Susan. I, I've, uh, you know, the Human Services Committee oversees uh, the Department of Social Services and the Department of Aging and Disability Services. Um, we're really focused on, on rebuilding the social safety net here in Connecticut. And um, we've been able to do it in a lot of different ways, help including supporting uh, the state's Medicaid program. But I really want to highlight some of the work that you did this session uh, and we did together in um, helping uh, rebuild uh, TANF. Uh, and you want to talk a little bit about what we did there? I know I'm, that that was... I'm thrilled. Um, absolutely a, a thrilled. This has been something that I actually tried to do when I first got to the Capitol was to work on TANF, uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, because uh, as I followed through uh, back in the day, we used to have a program called Aid to Families with Dependent Children, uh, which uh, mothers uh, that had children fell into hard times economically would be able to actually uh, stay on the assistance program until their children uh, were ready to go to first grade, till they were six years old. So once the kids were in school at that point in time, the moms would start getting some kind of training, begin working, and finally move their way off. They had a, they had a gradual program that allowed uh, subsidies uh, for work and uh, for uh, the child care and all those programs, all those things, that safety net was pretty strong. And over the years, uh, starting again with Reagan, <laughs> but moving fast through the Reagan years and into the Clinton years, when the aid to families with dependent children was completely eliminated and created uh, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program in the 90s. And what happened at that point in time is Governor Rowland uh, made, uh, because it's a block grant, they could do whatever they wanted. Before it was an entitlement program. Uh, it was changed from an entitlement program where you were entitled to whatever the contract between the state and the federal government was to a block grant, which was just allocated a, a, a money that could be used in any way that the state saw fit. Uh, so what happened is is uh, Governor Rowland uh, had made it into a 21-month uh, lifetime rule back in the 90s, and uh, it created a situation in our state where we had the second worst temporary assistance for needy families program in the entire country, and we are only funding it at 44% of poverty, giving women and children about two million to five million dollars over the years a year when the federal government was giving the state of Connecticut for that program $260 so million. So I was very, very pleased to be able to work with uh, you, Senator Lesser, and Representative Gilchrist uh, to actually make our temporary assistance for needy families 
more functional. So now we have a program that is 36 months and has uh, has uh, the benefit cliff goes on. It's not like it was where you just get shut down after you get to 44% of poverty. And we also have a situation where people are able to continue on past the uh, 44%. We've gone to 55% of poverty, and we're going to be going up to the federal poverty line at some point. And this is all going into effect uh, in April 2024. So these kinds of changes will help us with our homeless families because back in the day before we had this change under the Roland administration, I never saw a, a huge number of homeless families and shelters being filled up. But once TANF became the 21-month rule where Connecticut had the second worst program in the whole country, uh, we, are, we are now, I think, going to see a change in that. And the little children won't be traumatized anymore from being pulled out of their homes put into shelters and moved around from place to place. Uh, the one, their, their performance in school isn't as good when they're in that, in that dysfunctional kind of uh, trauma, homeless situation. So uh, that is, uh, I'm very thrilled that we have, we've stepped up and that we're doing more for the women and children. The little ones really need that security in their homes. Yeah, that's so important. And I, you know, I, 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 I think that Bill Clinton did a lot of good things, but uh, when he worked with uh, Republicans in Congress in what 1996, uh, to, you know, on the so-called welfare reforms, he really uh, did a, a lot of damage to, to families all across the country. And you know, that's that's you know, not only did Connecticut go along with it, as you point out, we have this, we had the second. Uh, least generous program in, in the country. And so effectively, we had no safety net for families that, you know, ran up, found themselves in financial difficulty. And, and your point is really well taken. You know, sometimes, you know, even a very small hiccup, you know, somebody you know, having a broken car uh, and not being able to get to work uh, can result in uh, a cascade of events that can wind up, that can wind them up in, in homelessness. Uh, and a, just a small amount of support, even a temporary support, uh, can really make uh, a world of a difference for families with young children. And um, that's why this program is, is so critically important because, uh, you know, people people can have major issues and they can uh, land on their feet and, and be tied over until, uh, until better times. But, but without that safety net, uh, you're really on your own and, and it causes you know, real trauma for, for families around the state. So um, I don't understand why we were so, you know, generally Connecticut's among the more generous states. You know, for us to be 49th in the country uh, was really appalling. And so uh, I'm so glad that you pointed that out to me and we were able to, to get that legislation passed this year. And uh, I know it's something you've been advocating for for a long time, and I'm just glad we were able to finally get it done. Well, I, I, I can't thank you and uh, Representative Gilchrist enough for the work that you did to coordinate. We have wonderful commissioners. Uh, we worked with the Department of Children and Families Commissioner, for example, who said that, gee, you're going to save our Department of Children and Families a lot of work and money if we actually able to make sure that women and children can stay in their homes and not end up in homeless shelters. That was one aspect of this uh, change. So DCF was on board. And Commissioner Barton Reeves at the Department of Social Services was great, too. She was really helpful in getting it through. And um, So the, the two of them, I think, were really instrumental. Yes, I agree with you. I was going to go on to her next, but, but I, I just wanted to just check in on uh, the – and then also uh, we had um, – 
the commissioner of early childhood, and she was very, very supportive. Uh, and uh, and also another former uh, House member. Yes, indeed. Yes, and then um, the commissioner of educational, uh, our commissioner, education commissioner, was also very supportive. So we had a really good team. We had the human services committee, and then we had uh, these four executive branch people who were really uh, understanding of the fact that uh, these these uh, this this TANF program needs to be there for the children. And it needs to be there to help the the families move forward so they can participate in the economy because there was there's no there was no you know way to get a step up in the economy without uh, getting a little support from the state and it's, yeah. uh, it's a huge benefit to the state to have all these people working in areas where they can afford to pay their rent absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, I was very, very pleased with the TANF program. And moving on to also the fact that we have a wonderful social services, human services uh, commissioner, uh, is a lot of the Medicaid programs that we're working on and will continue to work on. But Medicaid is an area that we really uh, need to continue to work on because it's very complicated. And I know that we've we've struggled with that area and uh, we will still be working on, on making sure. But one aspect of Medicaid that has been good and that we continue to do really, really well, it's called Medicare Savings, but it's supplemented by Medicaid. And the Medicare Savings Program is something that, you know, I like to make sure people know that it's a supplemental policy for people who are uh, eligible for uh, this kind of the income eligible eligibility, and you don't have to get any. You don't have to purchase a supplement for your Medicare if you're disabled or if you're um, uh, if you're 65 and over, because you can get the Medicare Savings Program to pay for all your deductibles and uh, coinsurance payments. For folks who are Medicare eligible, if you're over 65 or what is it, depends, well, depends on your age, but um, uh, right now it's open enrollment uh, for Medicare, uh, and this is a good time to take advantage of the Choices program uh, where you can, um, uh, and if you call 1-800-994-9422, that's 994 you can speak with a counselor in your area who could help you navigate uh, different Medicare programs, including the Medicare Savings Program, which can help pay your uh, your premiums. So um, this is a really good time to uh, to figure out what uh, uh, which specific programs are best for you. That's an excellent point. And uh, this enrollment period goes on until early December, so make sure you, if you want to change uh, what you're doing or you're just enrolling now, uh, you know, this is the time to do it, and you have until very early in December. I'm not going to give the exact date because mm -hmm. it changes from year to year. So that is a very, uh, very important thing uh, to know. And uh, one of the things also I think that we've been very, very focused on is, the fact that we want to make sure that uh, our uh, small businesses access the uh, access, uh, Connecticut Access CT for uh, supplemental policies, for the, not supplemental, for policies, health insurance policies, small group plans. 
because if they do access that through the Connecticut uh, CT access program, uh, what they'll be able to do is if they have a low-income population that they have employed with them, uh, they'll be able to get a supplement uh, from Connecticut access if they get the right kind of policy. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've been working on for a number of years is trying to figure out how to make sure that uh, small businesses can get access to affordable health insurance coverage uh, and avoid junk plans because a lot of folks, you know, if you're running a small business, that's hard enough uh, to also then have to figure out how to navigate the health insurance market is is, is a lot tougher. Um, what we've been seeing um, over the last few years is uh, a bunch of small businesses uh going to where brokers are steering them, which are to these what are called level funded plans. Uh, and those are potentially really bad news. These are, um, they, they promise uh, level funding, but what it really does uh, is it uh, puts an awful lot of risk on the employer. Uh, these are self-insured products. So, um, you know, it's one thing for a, a large employer to be self-insured. But it's another thing for a small employer uh, to take on uh, that level of risk. Uh, and it also uh, puts uh, a lot of costs onto uh, employees. And so uh, frequently these are junk plans and don't have the same level uh, of benefits that uh, uh, folks you know, might be used to. So you know, looking for alternatives is really important. Uh, I know Access Health CT uh, through their SHOP program has uh, some plans, uh, and I think we uh, need to work together, uh, you know, bipartisanly in the legislature to pass uh, legislation to, to make sure that more options uh, are available out there because it's a real challenge for uh, for small employers, I know. It is, a, and it's also uh, something that uh, people will go and work in a place where they have uh, have a chance for a health insurance plan. But if you have a junk plan, uh, in my mind, what that means is that, well, oh, by the way, you've got a very low premium, but you've got a huge deductible. And it can't be regulated by the state because the junk plans, those types of plans are uh, regulated on the federal level, not and so there's no access to being able to do state regulation in the junk plans. And so what they do is they have these high, high deductibles. So if you have a very high deductible, a lot of them are like $6,000 uh, in a year. You'd have to spend that down in a year. Uh, so people never really get to use their insurance plan because the deductibles are so high. And uh, the, way they do, the way they get people to sign into some of these things is by selling them on the idea that it's a very low premium but then the deductible is so high that the insurance industry really makes out. They collect the premiums and never have to pay any of the costs of the health care. It's a, it's a good business, I guess. But, no, it's, it's a real problem, and it puts small businesses at a competitive disadvantage because if you're a family and you, you know, want to make sure your you know, kids, when they get sick, can go see a doctor, uh, you're really going to have a strong incentive to go to work at a major employer, a large employer, um, and that hurts entrepreneurship. Uh, it hurts the economy as a whole because you know people should be able to go where work where they want to work, and they shouldn't be tied to an employer uh, just because you know just simply through scale they're able to offer you know decent health insurance. Exactly, and so that's going to be a constant uh, 
you know, piece of work that all of us are going to have to focus on because I think that uh, a lot of the insurance uh, industry uh, work is pretty complicated, just like the Medicaid <laughs> is complicated, and so is Medicare. And uh, these are things that uh, that sometimes if you can't study them or have some experience with them or, uh, like you say, go to Connecticut Choices for the Medicare uh, uh, you know, supplements, uh, then uh, you, you, we're in a we're in a situation where uh, people are going to end up paying money and not getting the benefit of the money that they've been paying into these, some of these plans. So it's really important that we continue to work on this and make sure that uh, that uh, people fully understand uh, what's going on and uh, how how they can miss out. I know that in my, in Wyndham, uh, the uh, the the Wyndham, uh, Town of Wyndham, whether it's the Board of Ed or through the Town of Wyndham for the town employees, they have the ERISA self-insurance plans. And the deductibles are very, very high, depending on which part of the plan they opt into. So uh, one of the things that I realized was that some of the lower-income people in the, in the school system or even in the town uh, hall were uh, having these huge deductibles and not able to actually be in a situation where they could, uh, you know, afford uh, the $6,000 uh, meeting that deductible. And so that was, uh, that was a real problem. And, uh, and so now we have uh, some money, I think, is being allocated during this session to people who are employees uh, and uh, are in lower incomes but having to pay into the plans. Right, we're, we're subsidizing the plans uh, for uh, for folks like um, uh, paraeducators who really couldn't afford uh, their um, their copays and their deductibles. Which, you know, it's it's one way to do things. I'm glad we're providing them with more affordable coverage, but it's. Uh, it's depressing that that's where we are as a country. Well, that's right. I mean, to, for us to have to subsidize the insurance industry when they're making billions of dollars is really a, a real problem. And uh, I think that we should be in a situation where we're, you know, <laughs> that they actually pay their fair share and they do the due diligence that they need to do as they promise that they're going to do. And we have a lot of situations where um, uh, where these uh, these pr these programs are going on and people don't really understand what hit them. I had a I had a situation in my district where somebody was in one of the uh, lower income physicians, but had a severe disability and had to go back onto the disability program, um, and um, and uh, couldn't stay as an employee paying taxes into the system. Instead, had to go back on disability because the the uh, deductibles were so high, and they couldn't uh, they couldn't take advantage of the of the program through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so if they had done an Affordable Care it can't do it with a big big employer. I mean, it's got to be under 50 people. So that's the, uh, the problem. So let's go on to a little bit more about some of the great work that you've done in the Senate. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the environmental uh, legislation that we are able to get through this last session. And I think that that's also very, very important for us to try and make sure that we have uh, good environmental initiatives here and that we're doing all we can to make sure that we are uh, protecting uh, protecting our uh, microgrid and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, making sure that we have a uh, we're, we're doing more with green buildings. Absolutely. Right, what um, so uh, w what in particular were you 
really excited about this year. Okay, so I was very excited about the fact that we are expanding eligibility for microgrid and resilience mm-hmm. loans, allowing the state to build more green buildings. And that was uh, that was something that I thought was a really great idea, and it's yeah. something that I think that we're going to be uh, we're going to be doing. Uh, you know, and, and so I'm very pleased with some of that work and the money that's being put in there through the green bank. A lot of that green bank work. I mean, I think you were part of the banking. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you were working as banking chair, mm-hmm. were you not? When when we did the green bank. Yes. So that's- uh, I, I think we did most of that to the energy committee, but I was involved in that. Uh, and you know, the microgrid idea comes out of the uh, big uh, fall storms. Uh, about 10 years ago, when we realized just how vulnerable um, our electric grid is to disruption. Uh, And, you know, the idea is that if you um, create microgrids around, you know, areas of critical infrastructure in particular, uh, then we're better off, you know, hospitals and uh, gas stations and town halls and high schools uh, can be better uh, protected uh, if we see a significant disruption to our electric grid. Um, and it allows us to focus on distributed generation. We have smaller power plants frequently, uh, fuel cells or um, renewables uh, that are able to uh, keep our grid more reliable and uh, help us uh, withstand you know, weather-related uh, or other disruptions of our, of our power grid. And you know, in an uncertain world, one where we're dealing with uh, climate change and all sorts of other uh, issues, um, it's a way of providing some extra resilience that, um, you know, could leave us much better off in the event uh, of an emergency. Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking back to that time when we had our first microgrids. I think it was after, was it Storm Sandy? Or was it Irene? I don't One know. of the storms. I, I, can't, I can't remember. I can't remember yeah. which storm, but I know uh, former Governor Malloy. Uh, helped create the microgrid program, and I know that the town of Wyndham, our uh, we had a, we had one of our firefighters step up and help us get that microgrid program going, and uh, mm-hmm. so we have one in Wyndham. But I think having it in other places is going to be essential, especially when you hear all the reports uh, nationally about how a lot of the grids aren't as protected as they ought to be from whatever storms or even interference from uh, you know some other other entities. So it's yeah. really, uh, really important thing. And so having a good microgrid and uh, being able to have a little more energy independence in each each home, if you've got your solar panels and backup batteries now, mm-hmm. uh, which you can also get some funding through the Green Bank on, that's another area that I think is uh, really uh, very, very important. Absolutely. So moving on a little bit to more education, I, I can't tell you how happy I am with the fact that the um, – Education cost-sharing grant will be fully funded in um, 2025. So that is going to be another another thing for our local uh, municipalities to be able to uh, make sure they have that full funding for the ECS formula. Uh, absolutely, and we've you know as we're working to close the uh, achievement gap, and I know you in particular have been working on issues for English language learners. I know that there's a, a big issue across the state, but particularly with them, uh, that we're able to provide state uh, funding for uh, lower uh, income school districts um, uh, to to really make sure that they're able to you know educate the, the folks across you know the, the young folks in Connecticut. That, that's really really critical. So uh, that was a big 
know, public education. So this is, uh, this is much deserved. Now, I know some of the unfinished work uh, that I'd like to continue to work with you on, uh, it, you know, revolves around funding for special education, which right now uh, falls disproportionately, overwhelmingly on local school districts. Uh, and, you know, it can be really, you know, very hard for them to manage. And so how do we, you know, provide that support uh, so that kids with special education needs, get the, you know, they get the education and sports that they need uh, is really, really important. I'd like to do more through the Medicaid program, uh, but I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts. I know that this is an issue that you're, you're really passionate about. I thought that was absolutely brilliant of you to think about Medicaid when it comes to special education. And I still, we still have to do a little bit more of an analysis on that because if we have a developmental disability that doesn't, you know, rise to the point where somebody needs, say, a group home or that sort of situation, but you still have a developmental disability that requires and is, uh, special education is provided on, uh, then that in that case, you know, we need to make sure that all the schools have the same standards. And one thing is, you know, that we did this last session is we created a, a work study group on special education to try and standardize uh, special education programs throughout the state and how we make that decision as to who would qualify. So that's, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a huge step because to think that we have a special education requirement, yet we don't have anything that's standardized uh, is, is really uh, quite, quite amazing to me <laughs> since it's been an issue. Uh, we've had special education requirements since the 1970s when Methel was the governor. Yeah. Now I've got to go say another thing that's historic. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, because Mexico created the special education program in our state, and really it has not changed uh, to any great degree in terms of how we fund it. And so it is uh, the the thought by uh, former Governor Meskel was to make sure that people just didn't float into the special education program uh, without having any real need. And so he made it very, very difficult to qualify for special education. So I think that this task force is going to be something that will help us because just think, that was back in the 70s. How much have we learned in terms of science and brain development and all the things that have happened uh, you know, scientifically with, with, with learning and analysis uh, since then? So I think we've got to step up and make sure that we're, we're you know, learning and we're applying what we know uh, to special education. And the other aspect of, this, of that special education issue is the fact that we didn't have, we had institutional settings for our students uh, back in the day. Uh, and, and then um, in the 90s, in, under the PJ case, another, case, another situation that former Governor Rowland created, all of the costs uh, when the children were uh, discharged from the, uh, the training schools and that sort of thing were passed on to the local communities. So there's another thing that people didn't really understand what was happening. Everybody was for deinstitutionalization, but they did not realize that that deinstitutionalization was going to shift the cost from the state to the town. And, uh, and so here we are now, fast forward, I've done an analysis, uh, financial analysis through the Office of Fiscal Analysis, just to see what the cost shift was and how much the local communities are paying now in total uh, for special education, and it's $1.6 billion. Wow. Yeah, $1.6 billion. 
And when we've underfunded our local schools, half of them have been underfunded, but the ones that were the most underfunded were in the communities with the least amount of resources because they provide the most services. Right, yeah. so we have our towns like Wyndham, Willimantic, Middletown, Hartford, New Haven, Bridgeport, Waterbury, New London, Norwich, all those places that have um, have payment lieu taxes properties that are state owned that have all kinds of uh, social service uh, programs have all mm-hmm. kinds of group homes that don't pay tax. All these non-tax paying properties are in these areas where they have the largest special needs populations. Right. Uh, well, first of all, for your younger listeners, uh, former Governor uh, Thomas Meskel left office in 1975. Um, but I think it just shows you just how uh, long the current laws that we've been in place on uh, special education have been in effect and have not changed. And, you know, things have, a lot of things have changed since 1975. Uh, most things have changed since 1975, and yet we're still... Uh, working under, you know, this ancient system of special education funding that has not kept up with the times. We've got um, a much larger number of uh, uh, kids uh, participating in special ed programs now than we did then. Uh, And uh, and the costs are far higher, uh, and yet we're still asking, you know, rich towns and poor towns to just figure it out. And, uh, you know, that is not working very well. It's working horribly, and it's really very hard to communicate to the town, uh, the finance groups in the town that do both the uh, education budgets and the town budgets. And like in Wyndham, for example, we have a board of finance. Uh, So to repeat to them, uh, now many do get it, but a lot of people don't, uh, that we have this uh, situation with special ed where if, in fact, we don't have an amount budgeted for the uh, special ed costs, uh, in the beginning of the school year, it's not necessarily the fault of anybody in the town who's tried to do a good budget. It's because some new special education students could be moving into your town, and then it's mandata- mandated that they actually get those special education care, the special education care, which can cost a great deal of money. Uh, right now, it's four and a half times the pre pupil cost, which means that. Uh, in my town, it means about $130,000 uh, that has to be spent by the town before there's any supplement by the state, and the state only supplements to, oh, they say they're, they're supplementing to around 80%, but I looked at all the data from this last year, and they weren't supplementing up to 80%. They supplemented 77%, 72% in some towns. Every town was a little bit different, but it was in the 70s, not 80%. So yeah. up to that 80%, and then the town is responsible for the balance. Now, if you have a special mm-hmm. needs student that goes into an institutional setting because it has to go for whatever reason, uh, that cost falls on the town. Yeah, and, and the costs can be, you know, so sometimes special ed costs are pretty minor, uh, but for uh, but for a student who needs an out-of-state placement, you know, the, the cost can be millions of dollars a year. That's a, that's a lot of money for a small district. That's for sure. And it's a lot of money for a district that's been underfunded for years. It doesn't have a tax base because they look at look at Hartford, New Haven, look at all the places that do the 
service. I call them, some people call them distressed municipalities. I call them service municipalities because mm-hmm. they serve the region. They serve the state. We serve our region. We serve all the places all around us don't have homeless shelters. All the places around us don't have nonprofit organizations or group homes to speak of. Uh, so we provide those services. And the places around us don't have a hospital or a university or a tech school or a, a community college or a fire school or an airport. We have all those things. And we have just a little bit less than 25,000 people, and we are supplementing that. And then they wonder why the tax at mill rate's high. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> With no subsidies from the state and when we're doing state work. Unbelievable. It is. Well, we have work. We have our work to do, and I think, and until we get there, until we tackle all the costs of education, uh, I don't think we can say, "Hey, we are fully funding education." I know we were funding one specific part of education, but not even the biggest part. Uh, and uh, if we're going to be serious about equity and closing the achievement gap, we have to tackle uh, special education. You know, some of the other, you know, big ticket inequities. Uh, in our system. Absolutely. That is that is so true. So we have to really understand what we're doing. It's very easy to understand, uh, you know, how to, how to make sure that you get uh, some kind of um, tax credit or tax rate, but it's not as easy to understand the financing mechanisms that go into our schools uh, beyond the fact that people have to pay some percentage of their property tax toward the school, uh, some percentage of their property tax towards town government. Uh, these are the things that people understand. But when you get into the cost-sharing grant or special education uh, and reimbursement systems, these are things that we have to continue to make sure people in the towns that we serve understand exactly what's going on so that they can work with us to make the changes that we have to make to have a good uh, equity in our systems. So that's that's exactly right. So I just wanted to we're, we're we just have a few more minutes left, mm-hmm. and I just wondered uh, some of the things that I've hit on. But how about some of the things you're you've hit on? Would like to hit on maybe? Well, so one of the things we did this year, uh, again, I was just appointed chair of the Human Services Committee in January, and um, this is a real opportunity to, to do an awful lot. One of the things that we have not. We, we partly did this year, but have a lot more work to do, uh, is to bring up our Medicaid reimbursement rates. You know, Medicaid, uh, which provides uh, health care for uh, seniors and the low-income community uh, and people with disabilities, is still spending uh, the same rates that it spent in 2007. In fact, it's paying just 50 uh, a little over 50% of what Medicare spent in 2007. And if you go anywhere else and you try to pay 2007 prices, uh, people will laugh at you. So we really do need to bring up uh, our reimbursement rates to make sure that that program is successful. Um, the other thing I'd like to do is to make sure that we're able to have a seamless transition from people with uh, Medicaid to uh, private health insurance. And that's by expanding a program called uh, Covered Connecticut that's been really successful um, at, at helping you know low-wage uh, working adults uh, afford uh, quality health insurance. Uh, but we can expand it and to support a lot more people well in the middle class. Uh, I, I don't believe, and I know you believe, uh, that uh, people, you know, in our state who are working should have quality health insurance. Uh, and we can make that a reality. We, we could really take that burden off of folks. Uh, and the Coverage Connecticut program, which, you know, Governor Lamont helped spearhead a couple of years ago, I, I think is a really good 
avenue towards um, addressing that for uh, for uh, low income and middle income uh, families out there. Um, and then there's a lot more stuff that that I'd like to tackle, including prescription drug prices. So uh, we'll see. Um, I'd love to uh, work with you in the coming session. I think we have a lot of uh, stuff uh, underway. Uh, you're a real uh, champion legislator at getting uh, all sorts of uh, nitty gritty policies uh, enacted into law, and it's been you know a pleasure to watch you work. Uh, and I think we can get a lot done this coming year. Well, thank you so much for those kind words, and I feel the same way about you. Uh, I think that you've done amazing work, and I'm, I've just been a real honor to be able to work with you on, on, on the things that you've done, and I'm really, really, really pleased to have you and Jillian as co-chairs of Human Services because uh, you understand and you want to make sure that the people in the Connecticut are able to you know, participate in the economy, make sure the kids are treated well, make sure everybody has access to the uh, health care that is necessary, and, uh, and of course, uh, making sure the Medicaid program pays uh, what it's supposed to pay uh, will be something that uh, uh, is going to be a, a, something I guess we're analyzing right now uh, as part of the Medical Assistance mm-hmm. Policy Oversight Council. We did have a, a discussion about that with one of the one of the uh, people who works there to uh, work on on this particular issue. So we're working at that, and also the monopolization of our hospitals. I mean, that, of course, has had a huge impact on how we pay for, say, our maternity wards and that sort of thing uh, might be another way to, you know, take a look at our Medicaid pay payments because about 50% of the people who have a, a, a child in their state are Medicaid eligible. And, of course, we can't, we can't say that without reminding people about baby bonds, <laughs> but uh, they're going to have the baby bonds program and, and – um, so from now on, uh, children born on Medicaid will have uh, some amount of money to be able to move forward and have something for post-secondary education. Absolutely. Uh, it could be transformative. So um, a lot of work to do. Very excited uh, to take part in it with you, Susan. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. It's been great. Uh, thank you so much, Senator Lesser, for being on the show. I really appreciate all your work, and I look forward to next session working with you on these issues. Thank you so much, and uh, talk and, soon. Go ahead. And please give my regards to your co-host. I will, absolutely. I, we will all get together soon, I'm sure. Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much. Take care, Senator.